This is Beatrice Manley, reading from Mount Olive, pages 37 to 55. Late that autumn, his posting came through. He was somewhat surprised to find himself accredited to the mission in Prague, as he had been given to understand that after his lengthy refresher in Arabic, he might expect to find himself a lodgment somewhere in the Levant Consula, where his special knowledge would prove of use. Yet, despite an initial dismay, he accepted his fate with good grace and joined in the elaborate game of musical chairs which the Foreign Office plays with such eloquent impersonality. The only consolation, a meagre one, was to find that everyone in his first mission knew as little as he did about the language and politics of the country. His chancery consisted of two Japanese experts, three specialists in Latin American affairs. They all twisted their faces in melancholy unison over the vagaries of the Czech language and gazed out from their office windows on snow-lit landscapes full of a solemn Slav foreboding. He was in the service now. He had only managed to see Leila half a dozen times in Alexandria, meetings made more troubling and incoherent than thrilling by the enforced secrecy which surrounded them. He ought to have felt like a young dog, but in fact he felt rather a cad. He only returned to the Hosnani lands once, for a spell of three days' leave, and here, at any rate, the old spiteful magic of circumstance and place held him, but so briefly, like a fugitive afterglow from the conflagration of the previous spring. Layla appeared to be somehow fading, receding on the curvature of a world moving in time, detaching herself from his own memories of her, the foreground of his new life was becoming crowded with the expensive colored toys of his professional life, banquets and anniversaries and forms of behavior new to him. His concentration was becoming dispersed. For Leila, however, it was a different matter. She was already so intent upon the recreation of herself and the new role she had planned that she rehearsed it every day to herself in her own private mind and to her astonishment realized that she was waiting with actual impatience for the parting to become final, for the old links to snap, as an actor uncertain of a new part might wait in a fever of anxiety for his cue to be spoken. She longed for what she most dreaded, the word goodbye. But with his first sad letter from Prague, she felt something like a new sense of elation rising in her, for now at last she would be free to possess Mount Olive as she wished greedily in her mind. The difference in her ages, widening like the chasms in floating pack ice, was swiftly carrying their bodies out of reach of each other, out of touch. There was no permanence in any of the records to be made by the flesh with its language of promises and endearments. These were already compromised by beauty no longer in its first flower. But she calculated that her inner powers were strong enough to keep him to herself in that one special sense most dear to maturity. If only she could gain the courage to substitute mind for heart. Nor was she wrong in realizing that, had they been free to indulge passion at will, their relationship could not have survived more than a twelve-month. But the distance and the necessity to transfer their commerce to new ground had the effect of refreshing their images in one another. For him, the image of Layla did not dissolve, but suffered a new and thrilling mutation as it took shape on paper. She kept pace with his growth in those long, well-written, ardent letters, which betrayed only the hunger which is as poignant as anything else the flesh is called upon to cure. 
the hunger for friendship, the fear of being forgotten. From Prague, Oslo, Bern, this correspondence flowed backward and forward, the letters swelling or diminishing in size, but always remaining constant to the mind directing it, the lively, dedicated mind of Leila. Mount Olive, growing, found these long letters in warm English or concise French an aid to the process, a provocation. She planted ideas beside him in the soft ground of her professional life, which demanded little beyond charm and reserve, just as a gardener will plant sticks for a climbing sweet pea. If the one love died, another grew up in its place. Layla became his only mentor and confidant, his only source of encouragement. It was to meet these demands of hers that he taught himself to write well in English and French, taught himself to appreciate things which normally would have been outside the orbit of his interests, painting and music. He informed himself in order to inform her. You say you will be in Zagreb next month. Please visit and describe to me, she would write. Or, how lucky you will be in passing through Amsterdam. There is a retrospective clay which has received tremendous notices in the French press. Please pay it a visit and describe your impressions honestly to me, even if unfavorable. I have never seen an original myself. This was Leila's parody of love a flirtation of minds in which the roles were now reversed for she was deprived of the riches of europe and she fed upon his long letters and parcels of books with a double gluttony the young man strained every nerve to meet these demands and suddenly found the hitherto padlocked worlds of paint and architecture music and writing opening on every side of him so she gave him an almost gratuitous education in the world which he would never have been able to compass by himself and where the old dependence of his youth slowly founded, the new one grew. Mount Olive, in the strictest sense of the words, had now found a woman after his own heart. The old love was slowly metamorphosed into admiration, just as his physical longing for her, so bitter at first, turned into a consuming and depersonalized tenderness which fed upon her absence instead of dying from it. In a few years she was able to confess as she writes, I feel somehow nearer to you today on paper than I did before we parted. Why is this? But she knew only too well. Yet she added at once, for honesty's sake, Is this feeling a little unhealthy, perhaps? To outsiders it might even seem a little pathetic or ludicrous, who can say? And these long, long letters, David, are they the bittersweet of a San Severina's commerce with a nephew Fabrizio? I often wonder if they were lovers. Their intimacy is so hot and close. Stendhal never actually says so. I wish I knew Italy. <laughs> Has your lover turned aunt in her old age? Don't answer, even if you know the truth. Yet it is lucky, in a way, that we are both solitaries, with large, blank, unfilled areas of heart, like the earlier maps of Africa, and need each other still. I mean... You as an only child with only your mother to think of, and I, of course, I have many cares, but live within a narrow cage. Your description of the ballerina and your love affair was amusing and touching. Thank you for telling me. Have a care, dear friend. Do not wound yourself. 
It was a measure of the understanding which had grown up between them that he was now able to confide in her without reserve details of the few personal histories which occupied him. The love affair with Grishkin, which almost entangled him in a premature marriage. His unhappy passion for an ambassador's mistress, which exposed him to a duel and perhaps disgrace. If she felt any pangs, she concealed them, writing to advise and console him with the warmth of an apparent detachment. They were frank with each other, and sometimes her own deliberate exchanges all but shocked him, dwelling as they did upon the self-examinations which people transfer to paper only when there is no one to whom they can talk. As when she could write, it was a shock, I mean, to suddenly see Nassim's naked body floating in the mirror, the slender white back so like yours, and the loins. I sat down and to my own surprise burst into tears, because I wondered suddenly whether my attachment for you wasn't lodged here, somehow, among the feeble incestuous desires of the inner heart. I know so little about the penetralia of sex, which they are exploring so laboriously, the doctors. Their findings fill me with misgivings. Then I also wondered whether there wasn't a touch of the vampire about me, clinging so close to you for so long, always dragging at your sleeve, when by now you must have outgrown me quite. What do you think? Write and reassure me, David, even while you kiss little Grishkin, will you? Look, I am sending you a recent photo so you can judge how much I have aged. Show it to her and tell her that I fear nothing so much as her unfounded jealousy. But one glance will set her heart at rest. I must not forget to thank you for the telegram on my birthday. It gave me a sudden image of you, sitting on the balcony talking to Nassim. He is now so rich and independent that he hardly ever bothers to visit the land. He is too occupied with great affairs in the city. Yet he feels the depths of my absence as I would wish you to more strongly than if we were living in each other's laps. We write often and at length. Our minds understudy each other, yet we leave our hearts free to love, to grow. Through him I hope that one day we Copts will regain our place in Egypt. But no more of this now. Clear-headed, self-possessed and spirited, the words ran on in that tall, fluent hand upon different coloured stationery. Letters that he would open eagerly in some remote legation garden, reading them with an answer half-formulated in his mind, which must be written and sealed up in time to catch the outgoing bag. He had come to depend on this friendship, which had still dictated as a form the words, My dearest love, at the heads of letters concerned solely with, say, art or love, his love, or life, his life. And for his part... He was scrupulously honest with her, as, for instance, in writing about his ballerina. It is true that I even considered at one time marrying her. I was certainly very much in love, but she cured me in time. You see, her language, which I did not know, effectively hid her commonness from me. Fortunately, she once or twice risked a public familiarity which froze me. Once, when the whole ballet was invited to a reception, I got myself seated next to her, believing that she would behave with discretion, since none of my colleagues knew of our liaison. Imagine their amusement and my horror, when all of a sudden, while we were seated at supper, she passed her hand up the back of my head to ruffle my hair in a gesture of coarse endearment. It served me right. 
But I realized the truth in time, and even her wretched pregnancy when it came seemed altogether too transparent a ruse. I was cured. When at last they parted, Grishkin taunted him, saying, You are only a diplomat. You have no politics and no religion. But it was to Layla that he turned for an elucidation of his telling charge. And it was Layla who discussed it with him, with the blithe, disciplined tenderness of an old lover. So, in her skillful fashion, she held him year by year, until his youthful awkwardness gave place to a maturity which matched her own. Though it was only a dialect of love they spoke, it sufficed her and absorbed him. Yet it remained for him impossible to classify or analyze. And punctually now as the calendar years succeeded each other, as his posts changed, so the image of Layla was shot through with the colors and experiences of the countries which passed like fictions before his eyes. Cherry-starred Japan, hook-nosed Lima, but never Egypt despite all his entreaties for postings which he knew were falling or had fallen vacant. It seemed that the Foreign Office would never forgive him for having learned Arabic, and even deliberately selected posts from which leave taken in Egypt was difficult or impossible. Yet the link held. Twice he met Nassim in Paris, but that was all. They were delighted with each other and with their own worldliness. In time, his annoyance gave place to resignation. His profession, which valued only judgment, coolness, and reserve, taught him the hardest lesson of all and the most crippling, never to utter the pejorative thought aloud. It offered him, too, something like a long Jesuitical training in self-deception, which enabled him to present an ever more highly polished surface to the world without deepening his human experience. If his personality did not become completely diluted, it was due to Layla for he lived surrounded by his ambitious and sycophantic fellows who taught him only how to excel in forms of address and the elaborate kindnesses which, in pleasing, paved the way to advancement. His real life became a buried stream, flowing on underground, seldom emerging into that artificial world in which the diplomat lives, slowly suffocating like a cat in an air pump. Was he happy or unhappy? He hardly knew any longer. He was alone. That was all. And several times, encouraged by Layla, he thought to solace his solitary concentration, which was turning to selfishness, by marrying. But somehow, surrounded as he was by eligible young women, he found that his only attraction lay among those who were already married or who were much older than himself. Foreigners were beyond consideration, for even at that time, mixed marriages were regarded as a serious bar to advancement in the service. In diplomacy, as in everything else, there is a right and wrong kind of marriage. But as the time slipped by, he found himself climbing the slow gyres by expediency, compromise, and hard work toward the narrow anteroom of diplomatic power, the rank of counselor or minister. Then one day the whole bright mirage which lay buried and forgotten reawoke, reemerged, substantial and shining from the past, in the fullness of his powers, he woke one day to learn that the coveted K was his, and something else even more desirable, the long-denied embassy to Egypt. But Layla would not have been a woman had she not been capable of one moment of weakness which all but prejudiced the whole unique pattern of their relationship. It came with her husband's death. 
but it was swiftly followed by a romantic punishment which drove her further back into the solitude which for one wild moment she dreamed of abandoning. It was perhaps as well, for everything might have been lost by it. There was a silence after her telegram announcing Falter's death, and then a letter, unlike anything she had written before, so full of hesitations and ambiguities was it. She writes, My indecision has become, to my surprise, such an agony I am really quite distraught. I want you to think most carefully about the proposal I am about to make. Analyze it, and if the least trace of disgust arises in your mind, the least reservation, we will banish it and never speak of it again.' 